My name's Alexander. Um, it's my pleasure to, to read this scripture we're going to be diving into this morning. So uh, would you all stand with me out of reverence for the, the reading of the Holy Scriptures? It's coming from Mark 14, 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And Jesus was anointed at Bethany. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of God. Y'all can be seated. We are uh, resuming Gospel according to Mark. Uh, we are starting chapter 14, which the first verses of which uh, Alexander just read for us, uh, which has been kind of our main agenda as a church for, uh, gosh, It'll be two years, I believe, in March uh, since we started. Um, so yeah, we are, we are in the home stretch. We're going to be in this book from now through Lent uh, and finishing on Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday will be our last time in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and we, we did this. We, we chose to go through a big, long book early in our church's life uh, because we thought there is no better foundation on which to build this church than just to come week after week after week after week after week to the person and the life and the teaching and the healings and the ministry and the example of Jesus himself. To just come again and again and again to see our Savior. And how does he interact with this kind of person and this kind of person and this kind of situation? What does he do when he stares down death? What does he do when he comes towards someone who's socially ostracized? What does he do when he's threatened? What does he do when he's scared? What does he do when he's facing opposition? And on and on and on. We're doing this not just because that's what churches do, read through books of the Bible or whatever, but because we want to know our Savior. We want to know Jesus. We want to become so familiar with him that we recognize our shepherd's voice, to use his own language. And so we hear his voice in every, all of the scriptures, of course, and that's why we've been doing other books as well and other studies and all these things. Um, but there's something about taking the gospels, these long accounts of Jesus, and just marinating in them as a community over time. I hope, my prayer is that we, Door of Hope Northeast, have been changed into something we would not otherwise be had we not done this. That we know Jesus more intimately now than we did two years ago. And we will, uh, you know, two months from now when we're, when we're finishing this book, three months from now, whenever it is. So, 
Another interesting thing, cool thing, I think, exciting thing is uh, with Josh Wilder having moved on, and just briefly, uh, if you don't know, Josh Wilder was the other full-time staff member here who uh, their family decided to move to the Midwest, uh, and they just moved at the end of the year. Well, actually, Josh packed up the, the U-Haul and went uh, last Saturday. Um, so we grieve that, we're sad about that, we wish them well on their new adventures uh, in St. Louis. Um, but something that's kind of cool is that um, with him out, it's, it's still a deep value of mine that I'm not the only person you're hearing the scriptures taught from week in and week out. Um, and so we've already started building a schedule for about once a month for different people to come and pepper in here. And so um, in a couple weeks, we'll have uh, Josh White from Door of Hope Southeast, which I haven't seen him preach. Well, I guess that's not true. I saw him preach last uh, Easter time, so it's been about a year. Um, but he's going to jump into the Mark series with us for one week. In February, we're actually going to have Michelle Jones from Imago Day come, and she's going to preach for us. Uh, she's amazing, if you don't know Michelle. Um, she'll be in Mark as well. Uh, we've got someone else lined up for March, and then we're hoping even as we move into the summer, there's a group of lay leaders here in the church we've been working with. Maybe some of them will be able to start peppering in as well. So um, it's a real opportunity for us to just get a more diversity and plurality of, of voices, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. So just so you know, that's, that's coming up. Um, okay, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. As we enter the chapter 14, what, what you immediately are, are struck with is that Jesus' death is in the air. And throughout the gospel, I mean, going back, I think, to like chapter two or three, the, 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 the religious leaders of the day were already plotting, like, we don't like this guy, we want to destroy him. And the threat of their decision to actually take action and to put Jesus to death has become more and more prevalent, more and more concrete. And then in this chapter 14, it's, it's, we actually see how the mechanization of it is going to work. We see uh, that they, they hate Jesus because in chapters 12 and 13, the two we've just been working through, uh, Jesus has just finally come on the offensive with them. Chapter 12 started with his triumphal entry into the city a week before his death. So now we're, Mark is really zooming in on this last week of Jesus' life. And Jesus, he, he, he cleanses the temple. He's throwing over tables, getting the money changers out. He's, he's pronouncing judgment on the temple and more specifically the, the, the leaders who are mishandling this beautiful temple system that God designed, how they're exploiting it. And then he's, call, he's challenging them in all sorts of ways. He's, he's comparing them. You know, like Jesus is just throwing down the gauntlet. And he's basically saying, all of you who have been supposed to be my representatives, representing my heart in the world, you've utterly failed. And he just, he, he condemns it all. And then chapter 13, which Josh taught for us in one extended section, he basically announces like the end of the temple system. This thing is actually not going to stand anymore. Um, and it, yeah, yeah, he, he lays down the gauntlet about as aggressively as he possibly could. And so we pick up in 14, the religious leaders, they say, we're ready to kill him. <laughs> the, the decision is made, it's just a matter of how. So as we, as we start here, we're, we're, most scholars would say we're on we, Wednesday of Holy Week. So Wednesday, Jesus is killed on Friday. So we are hours away from his crucifixion. And uh, yeah, the weight and the significance that comes as we read these stories, how Jesus chooses to spend his time, the things he chooses to engage with, they're full of extra significance because these are the final hours of Jesus' life. Here's what he's doing. 
May we see, may we see the significance of that. So pray with me real quick, and then we'll, we'll jump into this one. Lord, um, we're so grateful for your word, grateful for this, the, these words on these pages, Lord, though they've been uh, copied and, and translated and everything else and, and uh, printed <laughs> so many times. Lord, we, we have something that's been preserved for two millennia here. That, that has given um, your people an encounter with you across the planet and across time now, for two millennia. So we thank you for that. We, as we step once again back into the Gospel of Mark specifically, we just pray that you would speak to us. We pray that we would come face to face with the living Jesus and that the Holy Spirit, you Holy Spirit, would, would just open up our hearts to receive him, to receive you that we'd walk away from this passage, this encounter, having known you a little bit more and eager to follow you that much more. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're told in verse one, it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Passover is obviously one of the most significant holidays, uh, religious festivals, feasts, uh, practices of Israel. Uh, to this day, in fact, uh, it, culmin- it, it celebrates the, the great salvation event of the Old Testament, the Exodus, when God rescued his people from slavery and, and oppression, brought them out into uh, the land that he had promised them. And on this, at this time, the decision's made to kill him. It's just a matter of how, and we're going to see exactly how as we conclude this section. Um, so it's the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, they've decided we need Jesus arrested, we need to have him killed, but they decide they have to do it secretly because of Passover. It's deeply significant that Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion coincided with Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but we're going to talk about that in more detail next week because it, it gets into it a little bit more next week. For now, just note that Jerusalem probably, it could have had upwards of five times the number of people of its normal population. So you have to imagine like tents uh, all outside the city, kind of in the countryside there. Every inn is full up. People, like the city is just jam-packed with pilgrims there for this religious pilgrimage. It is just a crazy time. It's, we're talking like uh, Coachella there, okay? It's like <laughs> maybe in more ways than one. Uh, so it's jammed. It's jammed. And so if the religious leaders want to avoid kind of creating a big uprising, because we know lots of people are beginning to be really interested in Jesus. He's drawing these huge crowds. They like him. They may not be ready to follow him with all that they have or whatever, but Jesus is a popular guy. And so they know if we're going to do this, we are right now most vulnerable to sort of bring like actually a giant revolution or a huge uprising or a huge mob to, to, to thwart our plans. So they're like, how are we going to do this in secret? How are we gonna do this in secret? More on that later. Um, Jesus and his disciples, for their part, we've seen this again and again, they've been staying this week in the nearby town of Bethany, just a short walk from the city, um, and they were coming into Jerusalem during the daytime. So out in Bethany, on Wednesday, we see that Jesus is in the house of this guy named Simon the leper. Simon the leper. 
Presumably, this is somebody that had a serious skin condition. When the Bible uses leprosy, it can refer to the actual disease of leprosy, which you know, destroys your nerves and you know, your body ends up being unaware of pain, and it's a horrific condition, or it can refer to a number of other pretty serious skin conditions. Whatever it was, um, this is probably someone that Jesus had miraculously he- healed of this like crazy skin condition, and now he's just hanging out. He's reclining at his table, he's there, he's spending like the day before he's killed, at this guy Simon's house, this leper, this social outcast, this person who, who everyone would have been afraid to touch. In fact, it would have been religiously inappropriate, illegal for him to even approach people and be in close proximity to anyone, more likely than not, depending on what his condition was. And this is the, don't miss this. This is who Jesus spends Wednesday night with when he knows death is coming on Friday. Jesus chooses to spend what he knows are his final hours with this nobody, worse than a nobody, a social outcast, one from whom everyone would have had to keep their distance to maintain their religious purity. Jesus was not afraid of defilement. We've seen in this gospel again and again. In fact, he wants to come right into it and to heal sickness, not hide from it. Jesus is again and again showing he is a God who comes to bring life and hope and peace into death. Even in this little mention, we're reminded of that. But then something else happens, which is the heart of this story. I'll just read it again. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Just pause there, 300 denarii. A a denarius is about a day's wage for like a common worker. 300 denarii, a year's, basically a year's wages was what this was worth. So you can see their scandal here. It could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So she takes what is essentially this incredibly rare and expensive, it's like you could think of it like an essential oil basically, like like this really refined, boiled down oil probably from India. And it's in this nice alabaster jar. She takes this. She takes this and she shatters it and pours all of it over Jesus' head. Now, culturally, we're kind of like, what? (laughs) Like, I don't know. Probably none of us have ever done that to anyone, having just dumped oil on someone's head and then had to like, oh, what is the the significance of this? This was a normal thing. Uh, When people would come into others' homes, usually you'd get like a sprinkle of oil on, or not usually, but sometimes you'd get a sprinkle of oil on your forehead. Um, It was a perfume. It would help with... I'm assuming 
worse body odor issues at this time in human history than we have right now. Uh, and it, you know, it was, yeah, it was an act of hospitality. It was an act of, of cleansing. It was yeah, like a generous sort of thing you would do to a house guest. Um, so a little bit of oil on the head. It's a nice thing to do for somebody. So she just takes this to the like extreme. She takes the nicest stuff probably any of these people have ever seen and she pours all of it on Jesus' head. So it's just this picture of just extravagant hospitality. I mean, I don't know the practicality of this. I don't know if on some level Jesus was like, that's a little much, you know? I don't know. Like, did we, okay, anybody have like some water? I, where's the nearest well? Um, but he doesn't seem put out by it in this story. So he received it as a gift, an incredibly, incredibly generous gift. But the others, who we know from the parallel accounts, if you read about this story in the other Gospels, what you'll see is that this, this group of people who are, who are sort of muttering and scandalized by this included the 12 disciples. So at least the disciples and some of the other people in the home, they were scandalized. They did not like this. They did not like this. And the reason they didn't like this was for evidently sort of holy and righteous, pragmatic reasons, right? They tell you why. They say, shouldn't we have just sold this and given it to the poor? Isn't this just a colossal waste of money that she's pouring this out on Jesus' head? Why can't you just be more practical is kind of the idea here. So Jesus responds, Jesus responds with this kind of enigmatic statement. He says, look, you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. So what's he, what he saying in that, in that response? I want to make it very clear. Jesus is not denigrating care for the poor. I hope that's clear. I mean, he even says you, you can, and the implication is you should care for the poor. There will always be opportunity to do so. But he reminds us of a few things. One there is that humans are never going to achieve utopia. Like, just hear it there from the words of Jesus. Like, we will never arrange social structures in our educational system and our financial incentives and whatever else to make heaven on earth in full. We ought to be pursuing health and equality and all these wonderful things in our society as best we can, that we might get a glimpse and a taste of the life that God is going to bring in full one day. But Jesus just tells us it's never going to happen in full. Human programs, human effort will never bring about the utopia that we all in our deep longings desire. Fortunately, God promises to do that one day. That's the final conclusion of, of, of the meta-narrative of the Bible is that God will supernaturally bring his perfect world to bear and he will finally transform all of us. He will, he will cleanse us of everything that gets in the way of this beautiful, perfected new world that he wants to make. But it will not happen until he does that supernaturally, divinely, which he will one day. In the meantime, though, we just have to temper our expectations and there's a reason every one of our sort of, in all of our sci-fi stories, every time we're, we're going hard, humans are going far, hard for utopia, it always ends up in dystopia. We're just not good managers. The, the propensity to manipulate and to work the system to the benefit of some at the exclusion of others is just too strong. There's been no society that's achieved it. Our, our, our science fiction writers are afraid to even try it because they, they see truthfully the condition that we're all in. So that's, that's the first thing we take from that. But, but second is that he, he is reminding us that believers will always have the task of caring for the poor in this world. 
And note that you, you have to put this next to his teachings we find elsewhere. I mean, he makes dramatic calls to his disciples all over the place. To, to, in, in fact, think about the story of the rich young ruler. This, this young ruler who had lots of money, uh, very powerful, who came to Jesus, said, I've kept all the law, so what should I do to inherit eternal life? To this man, Jesus says, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. The, the very thing that these disciples are saying should have been done here. Jesus commends that to some people. He says, some of you, what you need to do, if you actually want to kill your idols and actually clear the debris and actually bring yourself to me in a way where you'll actually be able to follow, is sell everything and give it to the poor. Then come after me and find this life that I have for you. So Jesus is not against the idea of caring for the poor. Quite the opposite. It's, it's part of kingdom life. You read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see numerous calls for radical generosity towards those who have less than you. That applies to us all. Jesus himself even began his ministry, if you read like Luke chapter 4, by telling us, by declaring himself to be the one that Isaiah promised who would, quote, proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus cares deeply about the poor. And tragically, this passage has been read and utilized by, by some Christians to sort of dismiss the, the, the care and the concern for the poor. Like, oh, look, that poverty will always be an issue, so we just shouldn't really care about that or whatever. Don't fall into that trap. The poor are near and dear to the heart of the God that we serve. Do not twist this passage to say otherwise. But, third thing, Jesus is reminding us here that this time that they lived in with the incarnated presence of Jesus in their midst, this time was temporary and was to be savored. That's the heart of this. That's the heart of this. Jesus sees that she sees. I mean, she probably, hadn't, she probably didn't even know that he was about to die. But she recognized the value of this person that was standing in front of her enough to pour probably her entire life savings on his head, literally, to just break it and give it all to him. She knew the significance of what was before her. And Jesus recognizes that she's actually doing something, whether she knows it or not, loaded with historical significance. She's actually preparing his body for death. So unbeknownst to her, unbeknownst to the people in this room, she was part of this like amazing, redemptive, historical, historical moment where she's actually preparing the Messiah's body for the death that's coming. That's amazing. So what we have in this woman is an amazing sort of non-utilitarian uh, act of extravagant worship where she's just unafraid to lay every single thing that she has on this Messiah. I think far too many of us, when we see these kinds of acts of worship, we react like the disciples in this passage. I think we're made uncomfortable when we see this sort of amazing, like all heart and soul, everything I have act of worship laid down, like ah, we love Jesus, but let's not love him that much. Let's not go that crazy. Let's not, you know, let's be a little bit more responsible, should we? And I think this should be a challenge to us. Frankly, this is one of the things when I see people like really leaning into generosity or even expressiveness in worship, my, my heart is to do this very same thing like, eh, should, but, but should we do that? So I'm challenged by this. I assume many of us are. Well, the second main theme, if the first idea is, look, 
extravagant worship. The second is this. This woman actually shamed both the enemies of Jesus and the disciples of Jesus with this act of worship. You know, one thing Mark is doing constantly, and we bring it up from time to time, is that Mark is constantly playing with this idea of who are the real insiders and who are the real outsiders when it comes to Jesus and his kingdom. Mark is trying to constantly upend our assumptions about what kinds of people actually receive what Jesus has on offer. And we see this in two ways here. First is, if we didn't have all our sort of Christian education, when we hear the word Pharisee, we go, oh yeah, those are the bad guys. If we didn't have that, and you just knew the Pharisees or the people who were really trying to be obedient to the laws of Moses so that Messiah would come back and put everything right, and they're trying to call all of the people to just live whoop, more righteously, more honestly, more faithfully, more committedly, that's a good goal. We would assume that these people who, who are the experts in the scriptures would be the ones who when they saw God in flesh would see him for who he is. And they'd throw themselves at his feet and they would say, this is the one we've waited for. Let's worship him. Let's, let's do whatever he says. Let's follow him. This is the Messiah. That's what we would assume. That's what we would assume. But in this story, we see it's just the opposite. They are the ones actively plotting to kill him and to do it secretly. Okay? Well, surely then we would expect Jesus' inner core, the 12 people that Jesus pulled to be his closest disciples, to be his traveling companions, who lived with him, who for three years almost never left his side, who received all of his teachings, who did some of his teaching on his behalf. He commissioned them to go out and teach. He entrusted them with his message. Some of them performed miracles in his name. Okay, I've got it now. The disciples, the 12 at least, surely they are the ones who get it, who, who are in right position next to Jesus. What we see again is that in this story, at least, they are the ones who scorn genuine worship. When someone actually lays everything they have at the feet of Jesus, they go, I don't know about this. This seems a little bit crazy. As we read on, what we're gonna see, and we already read it earlier, is that actually one of them also is the one who is making a plan to hand Jesus over to be killed, and he's gonna do it for money. Oh, the irony of that. You catch that. The disciples complaining, couldn't this money, couldn't we get money to give to the poor when one of them is actually gonna betray Jesus for money, presumably for selfish reasons? So it's not the religious leaders of Israel, the temple leadership, the Pharisees, the scribes, it's not them who are the insiders here, not in this story, and it's not even the 12 disciples, Jesus' closest trusted allies. No, it's an unnamed woman outside the holy city of Jerusalem, inside the house of a leper, who is the one who demonstrates genuine love, genuine worship, and genuine faith. And Jesus even says, whenever my gospel is proclaimed across the entire world, this story will be told in memory of her. And right now, we all get to be in fulfillment of this prophecy, don't we? That might seem like a little, oh, that's cute. No, guys, it's 2,000 years later. We're in Portland. We're on the west coast of North America. The gospel is being proclaimed and this woman is being lifted up 
to the shame of the Pharisees and the scribes and even the disciples themselves. It's actually happening. You see that? This story has been included. Mark has included this. And it has, it has in fact, been told in memory of her going on 2,000 years. It's amazing. We are fulfilling this moment right here at Door of Hope Northeast, so don't miss her example. The application of these perpetual themes that keep coming up in Mark is challenge your assumptions. Mark wants you, if, even if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, he wants you to be a little bit destabilized by this. Do you assume you're walking closely with Jesus? Do you assume that everything is going well, everything is going swell? Do you assume that because of reasons A, B, C, because of what you've done, because of what you've sacrificed, because you don't do activity A, B, or C, or D, or whatever, that Jesus is pleased with you, that you're close, that you're in the inner circle? I'm not saying you're not. I'm just saying when you read this story, you need to get pricked by this and go, now wait a second, now wait a second. Examine yourself, examine yourself. Appearances can be deceiving to the most dramatic extent. So that's movement two. Third movement, verses 10 and 11, the end of this passage say, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, one of the 12 who had been called, who, again, who had lived three years nonstop with Jesus, his closest confidants, his brothers, one of them, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they heard it, and they were glad, and they promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So this little story ends with Jesus on the lookout. How am I going to do this? How am I going to hand Jesus over to these guys to be killed in secret? So we're reminded again of Jesus' impending death. We're reminded that his death is coming. And we're reminded, I think, where what we're meant to see is a connection to what this woman has done. And this is our final point here. In the same way that this woman broke the vessel and gave everything, and it was met with this sort of, who could possibly be worth this, like what you're pouring out on this Jesus? This seems so irresponsible. Think of the Messiah on his way to be killed suddenly. The plan is in motion. Whose body is given, whose life is poured out to the full on, on those whom any objective person would have to say are not worthy. The, the greatest sacrifice in this passage is not just, the, it's not this woman's gift, though this is amazing and she's celebrated, of course. It's Jesus who himself is going to be the one who lays everything out in this extravagant act of self-sacrifice on those who might otherwise be regarded as unworthy if he did not say they are worth everything. Jesus' body was destroyed in this irreversible act of love and generosity. What this woman is do, has actually done is this little preview, this foretaste of what the Messiah is going to do. And genuine salvation does not occur by us mustering all the stuff that we have and throwing it on Jesus. He actually says, no, I'm actually going to be the one who sacrifices everything. I'm actually going to be the perfect spotless Passover lamb. 
I'm actually going to be the one for whom everything gets laid out and the world could look and say, this makes no sense. If you are in fact the eternal God, this is worth everything poured out for in comparison, nothing. Thank you, Lord. Praise God, man. No. No, yeah, we are meant to see. And what this woman has done is a preview of what Jesus himself is going to do of even more infinite extravagant value. So we celebrate her act, but we, even, we, we, we consider how it just pales in comparison to what Jesus himself is about to do. So as, as the story starts ticking closer and closer and closer to his death, we, we're going to feel in the Gospel of Mark the sense of injustice and the wrongness of this and the fact that this beautiful Jesus who, who is the way that he is and who cares for the people that he cares for and who teaches with the brilliance that he does and who champions self-sacrifice and self-giving and love and forgiveness and grace and all these beautiful things that he is going to be plotted against, unjustly arrested, unjustly tried, unjustly executed, and we are meant to say this is not right. It's not right. And it's exactly what he wanted. No one takes his life, but he lays it down freely. Because that is, in fact, the eternal plan of God to save all people to himself. Any who would come to him and receive what he has done. That is poured out on them. Just an absolutely unfathomably monumentous gift. The, the word today to conclude is receive that gift. If you have, may today be just a fre- bring a fresh awareness. We say this all the time, but we'll say it again. A fresh awareness of what he's done. May you respond to him in worship. May you recognize that, man, I, even that image of the Holy Spirit being poured out on his people, I think, ties into this. That, that image of this anointing oil The Spirit is compared to that as well, that he has poured out his very Spirit on all who have called upon the name of Jesus. We have received something that we cannot even begin to process the value of, friends. So may we not just be sit content with that. May we not just rest on our laurels and think, oh yeah, whatever. May we be floored by it afresh today. And if you never have, just know, just know that that gift is there for you. There is no one that God holds at arm's length He invites everyone to come and receive this gift. And today could be the day. Today could be the day. The scriptures declare, if you, whoever confesses with his mouth and believes in his heart that Jesus is Lord will be saved. And you receive that gift, that immeasurable gift for yourself. Well, I think we should end there. I think we should end there and I think we should worship in response. Pray with me one more time.